Hello! Welcome to Sounds from the Shadows, the podcast about folklore, fairy tales, storytellings, and a few random tangents as well. I'm Emily Collins, and I hope you're all very well listening, keeping safe, and as it is mid-October, I hope you're keeping spooky as well. Because it's that time of year again. My favourite time of year. And admittedly, this Halloween season is uh, its going to be a bit different than it has been previously. But I still have my pumpkins out. I have toasted and buttered my barn brack. I'm adding cinnamon to everything. And last night I just finished watching The Haunting of Bly Manor. And I personally, I really enjoyed the series. I thought it was an interesting take on The Turn of the Screw. I liked how they dealt with the theme of memory. I thought they handled the dementia subplot very well. And the scene at the bonfire, it it was a very moving scene, in my opinion, and excellently executed. I know it's not to everyone's tastes, especially as it's coming after The Haunting of Hill House. And I think a lot of people were expecting it to be the same tone of of horror and scares, whereas it's um in some ways it's more gentle. But I, I definitely found myself enjoying it. And I'd recommend if you haven't seen it, take a look. It's uh, Netflix's new series. And if you have seen it and liked the premise, or if you just like gothic suspenseful horror set in a possibly haunted house, my recommendation for the spooky season would be to look at the 1961 classic The Innocents. And that's enough of a tangent into the world of cinema. But I do want to talk about some strange hauntings and ghostly experiences. Though ones that are a little bit more um, corporeal than the ghosts of Blythe Manor. Because as you have probably guessed from the title of the episode, I've got a few stories I want to tell about visiting corpses. There are loads of folklore about the dead rising and coming back, sometimes as reanimated corpses. Uh, There's been a whole wave of zombie media in recent years. And if you go back to medieval folklore, you'll find the revenants, which are sort of a strange mash between a vampire and a zombie, a corpse rising from the dead and coming back to prey upon the living, often bringing with them plague and pestilence. But speaking for myself, I'm not really in the mood at the moment for stories about plague. I'm sort of getting enough of that on the news. Though if you would like a story of how things could always be worse, look up the story of 16th century plague-spreading revenant Johannes Cuntus, also known as the Bad Breath Vampire, which is quite a moniker to have. I have two stories for you about visiting corpses, and the corpses in this question I don't think could be considered revenants because firstly, they don't spread plague or disease or pestilence or anything like that. And they also seem to have retained most of their personality and their intelligence, which would be a little bit unusual for a classic revenant. The first story I'm going to tell is an Irish story. And it is a story that I first heard told by Nisha, who you may remember from the last episode on Banshees. And Nisha, I and a few other storytellers will be doing a spooky Halloween themed live storytelling session over on YouTube on, I think, the 29th. Uh, Links and things will go up close to the time. And I'm hoping he might be persuaded to tell this story. But until then, here is my version of Dan Crowley and the ghosts. There once lived a man called Daniel Crowley. Now, the Crowley family had been carpenters and cabinet makers for as long as anyone could remember. They made good, solid furniture that lasted. But this 
proved to be a bit of a problem, because the good solid furniture would last from one generation to the next, meaning that no one ever had to buy anything new. And while the occasional repair might be needed, it was hardly enough work to keep body and soul together. So Daniel Crowley, being an enterprising man, began to cast his mind around for what product could he make that everyone would need, but no one would ever want second hand. And that was when he came up with his new business plan. He would make coffins. For after all, everybody needs a coffin at some stage in their life, uh, generally at the end. And no one would like to buy a pre-used coffin, no matter how careful the former owner had been. And so Daniel Crowley became the coffin maker and became very successful at it. He made coffins for rich and poor. Coffins of oak and pine, rowan, maple and mahogany. Plain coffins for those who wanted to make their exit with no fuss. Ornate coffins lined in satins and silks with brass handles for those who really wanted to leave in style. Dan Crowley proved to be a natural at the coffin trade. He could eye up someone as they walked down the street, mentally fitting them out like a tailor for their final resting place. He always made certain to have a good stock ready and waiting for when the need may come. And so, when one night there was a knock at the door, saying that Mr Malloy was in need of Dan's service as he had finally snuffed it, Dan was able to go into the back of his workshop and pick out exactly the right coffin to send Mr Malloy off to meet his maker in. He loaded up his cart and went to the home of the deceased. When he arrived, he found that there was already a crowd gathering, gathering in preparation for the wake. While it might be traditional for a funeral to be a sad and sombre affair, the wake that precedes it is something altogether different. There are many traditions held at the Irish wake, and some would say that it's one of the best parties you can ever go to. Drinks are drunk as they toast the life that has passed. Stories are told, songs are sung, and there are a number of unusual parlour games played as well. It's quite the celebration, and it's sometimes said that a really good wake can lead to at least three new marriages. And indeed, when Dan Crowley entered with the seat for the guest of honour, matchmaking was on the mind of more than one of the guests in attendance. You see, Dan Crowley, he was a single man. And though he was getting a little advanced in years, he still cut a fine figure at the dance. He was hardworking and had a good business, one that meant he would never be out of work. And he had saved himself up a tidy little nest egg for his retirement. And of course, when he retired, he would have to pass the business on to someone. And wouldn't that be great security for any future grandchildren? There was one woman in particular who had set her sights on Dan Crowley. She was a widow with three daughters, all three of them fine specimens of womanhood who would each make an excellent wife. She might even toss her own cap into the ring if Daniel Crowley happened to prefer the more mature lady. She felt certain if she could only persuade Dan Crowley to stay for the wake, there would be a match made that evening. Due to his profession, Dan was always present at the wakes, but tended to leave before the celebrations got into full swing. So the widow downed her glass before picking up a second one and making her way through the crowd to press it into Dan's hand. Dan, being a well-brought-up young man, would not refuse the hospitality, so he took the chair that was offered to him and drank the drink, and a second, and a third, and was even persuaded to give them a song or two. Meanwhile, the widow had recruited some of her friends, and they each began to go up to Dan Crowley in turn, subtly suggesting that there were some fine young women in attendance, and that if Dan Crowley was looking for a wife, he'd never get such a good chance again. As the night wore on, Dan began to become increasingly frustrated and then angered by this. And at last he shouted out, There isn't a woman wearing clothes that I could be tempted to marry. 
The widow, hearing this, seemed to take it as a particular insult towards her daughter. She rounded on Dan. You might have been the father to my grandchildren, Daniel Crowley, but you're not even worthy to lick their shoes. You're only worthy of the company of the dead, for it's by the dead that you make your living. Well, retorted Dan, I'd happily take the company of the dead over the living if all the living were like you. Besides, I have nothing against the dead, for I have met many a dead man in my life and never had a cross word with any of them. Then get out of here and go to your dead people. Throw a grand party for all the corpses. I would sooner do that than remain here, said Dan, rising to his feet. He stepped out into the night and declared for all to hear, men, women and children, to all that I have ever made a coffin for. This night you are all welcome to my abode, and we shall have such a grand time that it'll put all the living here to shame. And so saying, he left, not thinking hard on the declaration he had made to the night. On his travels home he stopped in at a public house and bought himself a pint of whisky to keep the chill off. He heard the sound of screams coming from the house where the wake was being held, but he merely assumed that the widow had found a new victim to try to thrust her three daughters upon. As he came closer to his own home, he saw light blazing from all the windows. He stopped. He was certain he had not left a candle lit when he had gone. He wondered if while he had been away, some robbers had broken into his house and were rummaging through looking for his savings. He decided he would wait in the bushes and see who came out of the house. As he waited in his hiding place, he saw a figure walk down the road, walking in the same direction he himself had come. And as the figure got closer, he found he recognised it. It was old Mr Malloy. Dan could hardly believe his eyes. What the old man, who he had seen, stone dead, not half an hour before, happily skip in through his own front door. Sounds were coming from the house now. Sounds of chattering voices. Sounds of merriment. Sounds of a party beginning to get underway. Dan ran to the house, prepared to force the intruders out. But as soon as he stepped over the threshold, a hand clapped him on the back. Daniel Crowley. Oh, what a pleasure this is. Dan turned. Do you not recognise me, Dan? I was your first customer. I've slept many years in that coffin you made me, and in all the years I was alive, I never had a more comfortable place to lay my head. Dan found that... He did recognise the man speaking, though his face had greatly changed since he had last seen it. Um, uh, glad you, uh, you, glad it was to your liking, said Dan, unable to look away from the worm that was wiggling around inside the man's eye socket. Yes, indeed, cried another voice, coming from a particularly tall figure. My family worried that they wouldn't find a coffin long enough for me, but Dan here, he provides a bespoke service. And indeed, Dan recognised this man too. And in fact, all the party-goers, once he allowed his mind to make a few adjustments for decay, he recognised each and every one was a former customer. Dan was passed from corpse to corpse, his hand clasped by skeletal fingers and shaken with thanks. And once he had gotten over the shock, he found himself quite enjoying the company. More and more guests arrived, fresh from the graveyard. The Piper Healy came and the fiddler Reardon. It wasn't long before the crowd were calling for a song. Unfortunately, neither musician had been buried with his instrument, but that was not to stop the creative corpses. Reardon took his thigh bone, drilled a few holes in it, and soon began to play it like a flute. Healy, not to be outdone, 
ripped off what little flesh still clung to his body and began to rub it up and down against his ribs, each rib creating its own note. It wasn't long after that that the dancing began. One couple seemed to stand out particularly well among the dancing and all formed a circle about them, clapping and cheering, all but one dead woman, who stood there with her skeletal arms crossed, scowling at the dancing pair. In life, the dancing pair had been a married couple, but the man had been married before, and when his first wife predeceased him, he had taken a second. It was the first wife who stood scowling, and when her jealousy came to a boiling point, she cried out that it was unfair, as the first wife surely she had the right to the first dance. The second retorted that it was perfectly fair, seeing as she, the second wife, was by far the better dancer. Better dancer my foot, screamed the first wife. Sure you're not even standing on your own shin bones. Is it true? said the man, looking down at his wife's bony feet. Are those not your own shin bones that you're standing upon? If there had been any blood left in the second wife's body, it would have rushed to her face. She looked down sadly and said, No, my own were crushed by a tree root growing in the cemetery, so I had to borrow these. Shame, cried the first wife, to be dancing with your husband in another woman's shin bones. This caused a terrible fight to break out. Some of the skeletons present, being relatives of the second wife, took her side. Others, being relatives of the first, took hers. Some felt it was disgraceful for the man to have come to the party with two wives. Others felt he should have come with no wife. After all, the vow was only till death do us part. There was shoving and pushing, and the skull of the man in question went flying across the room. This caused a true battle to break out. None present had any weapons, but just as the piper and the fiddler had improvised their instruments, soon arms and legs were grabbed and used as cudgels and clubs. The sounds of screams were only rivalled by that of the sounds of crashing bones. Daniel Crowley fought his way through the melee and only just managed to make his escape with his own skull intact. As he stood outside, his back leaned up against the wall, fighting to regain his breath. He saw a figure standing there, just outside the light cast from the window. Tell me, stranger, are you one of the living or one of the dead? gasped Dan. Once one of the living, now one of the dead, replied the figure, coming closer to the light. If one of the dead, why are you not inside with the rest of your company? He could see that it was a woman, and though he could not make out her face clearly, it appeared to him that she must not have been long dead, at least not as long as some of the more skeletal of the guests. When I died, you gave me a coffin, but my family had no money to pay for it. I was ashamed to come here tonight, not certain if I would be welcome, and not knowing if you would shame me before the others. Daniel Crowley felt inside his pocket and found he still had the pint of whisky there. He opened it and took a fortifying swig before offering it to the dead woman. You have nothing to be ashamed for, and if you were to die again and then twice after that over and have not a penny to pay me with, I would still see it that you had a coffin to be buried in. There is one thing that I have learnt in this trade, and it is that all are equal when they come before the reaper. And if such a great figure as death sees all in that light, then who would I, a humble coffin maker, be to disagree with him? There is a dignity due to the dead, and as I make my living by them, I am bound to respect that. You are owed a coffin, and I was bound to give you one, whether your family could pay me or not. You are a good man, Dan Crowley, said the corpse and you have the thanks of the dead with you. And so saying, she reached out and touched Daniel Crowley, and he found himself falling into the deepest sleep he had ever known. When he awoke in the morning, there was no sight of the ghostly company. He did not know when they had broken up 
or what the outcome had been from the fight over the shin bones. And for as long as he lived, he never saw another member of that company again. But once he himself was laid in one of his own coffins and put to rest, well, then the party was ready to get started again. And I hope you enjoyed that story. Thank you, Nisha, for telling me that tale. And I hope my retelling did it at least some justice. If anyone is wanting to look it up, it's on Sacred Text as well. Dan Crowley and the Ghosts. And I just adore the detail about the woman dancing on borrowed shin bones. I just couldn't leave that bit out. The next story I have to tell you is a little bit different. And it comes not from Ireland. It comes from another island nation. It comes from Japan. And I'm not going to try to pronounce the name in Japanese. As you'll have already heard, I, I struggled to pronounce things in the language that I speak. But the title in English is The Peony Lantern. Some of you might already know this story. It is quite a well-known Japanese ghost story. Though possibly an early version of it came to Japan from China. But that's according to Wikipedia. But an interesting tidbit I found out about this story and about stories travelling. It was translated into English in 1899 in part of a collection of Japanese stories. And the translator was a man by the name of Patrick Lafacido. I may be pronouncing that wrong. Hearn. That is his English language name. He has another name in Japanese, which again, I'm not even going to try to pronounce because I will only butcher it. But Hearn was a man of Irish-Greek descent who went to America before going to Japan and spending the rest of his life there. He's a fascinating man with a really interesting biography. And one of the many things he did was collect and translate some of the well-known Japanese tales into English and send them back, giving us here in the West some of our first glimpses at them. And this is a ghost story that I have been aware of for quite a while, but I didn't know about Hearn and his translation of it. But this summer, when it looked like COVID was dying down and the restrictions in Ireland had been lightened, and we were able to move around the country a bit more freely. Me and my family went down to Waterford and we stopped off in Tullamore, where there is a garden, a rather unusual garden. Slap bang in the middle of Tullamore, County Waterford, there is a beautiful Japanese garden. And it's also a biographical garden, which is something I hadn't experienced before. The Lafacido Hearn Gardens. And I'm going to put a link in the episode description to their website because it truly is beautiful. And if you happen to be in Waterford and you're looking for something to do, I'd recommend you take a visit. But that's enough about the garden. Now the story. Once a young man went to work as the servant of an old gentleman. The gentleman was a samurai and in his time he had been a great one. But his bones had grown old and weary. He knew his time in this life was not long left, and he needed someone young and strong to help him in his final days. Someone to help him as he walked on his stick towards the bath, and make sure he would not fall. Someone to read to him when his eyes grew tired and misty. But most of all, someone to keep him company, for he found that as his number of days grew shorter, the nights each seemed to grow longer and longer. The samurai and his new servant got on well, the young man becoming incredibly fond of the old. He wished that he might have known his master when he was in the prime of his life, rather than in these last shadowy years. But he was still glad that it had been his pleasure to meet and serve such a great man. The samurai often found it difficult to sleep at night. He would sit with his servant, sometimes telling stories of the adventures he had had in his life, 
Sometimes he would ask the young man to read him poetry, but more often the two would sit there silently, watching the night and the stars and the moon. One night as the two sat there, they saw a light. The light came closer, and they could make out a shape holding the light, the shape of a woman, a maid, and walking behind her, her mistress. As the two women came closer, the samurai instructed his servant to go out and call to them, to invite them to come to the house. The young man did as he was bade, and went out to greet the two women. Neither of them spoke to him. The maid holding the lantern smiled and nodded, and followed him back towards the house, her mistress walking behind. The young man had not seen the face of the mistress, for it was hidden by shadows, but he assumed that she must be very beautiful. She wore elegant clothes, and her movements were very graceful. The samurai took the two women into his house, but told his servant to wait outside and keep watch. The servant did as he was told, and as he watched the night and the moon, he could hear the soft sound of music and of singing coming from inside the house. He did not see the two women leave, but they must have left, for when dawn came and he went inside the house and began to make his master tea, there was no sign of them. The old samurai seemed happier than the young man had seen him, but he also seemed more tired and more weak. That night again the two men were sitting out when they saw the light of the lantern and the two women approaching. Again the samurai told his servant to go and invite the women into the house, and when the women were inside the house, he told his servant to wait outside. And again while he was sitting outside, the servant heard the sweet sound of music and singing and quiet laughter. And again he did not see the women leave, but again they must have left at some stage in the night, because when he went inside at dawn, there was no sign of them. Only his master, happy and content, but so weak that he needed both hands to lift his cup of tea. The third night, just as before, the two men were sitting out watching the moon and the stars, when they saw the women with the lantern approaching. Just as before, the two women came inside and the servant was instructed to wait outside. But he was curious as to how it was that the two women always seemed to leave without him noticing. It was this that made him rise shortly before dawn and peek inside the house. Whatever it was he had imagined might be happening, it did not compare to the reality that met his eyes. Inside the house, he saw his beloved master, the old noble samurai, wrapped in a lover's embrace, but not with a young woman of soft flesh and warm blood. No, the old man's arms were wrapped around a skeletal figure. The dried flesh was stretched so tight over the bones, in some places they had poked through and were visible to the moon and the lantern light. Dark hair still clung to the death's head, but there were no eyes in that face. Sitting in the corner, holding the lantern, there was the maid, holding the lantern, still smiling, because a skull has no choice but to smile, and the maid was even more skeletal than her mistress. Horrified by the sight, the young man ran towards the nearest temple. He told the monks of the unnatural sight he had seen, told them how he feared his master was in great danger, and begged them to tell him how he might protect the old samurai. They gave him prayers to chant and charms to place about the house, charms that would prevent any dead from entering that place. The young man did as the monks had instructed him. 
and that night he did all he could to prevent the old samurai from sitting outside and watching the moon. He said it was too cold for them to spend the night outdoors. He was able to persuade him to stay inside, but still the samurai kept turning his head towards the door, as if he heard someone approaching, and telling his servant to go out and see if there was anyone on the road. Each time the servant said that he saw no one, but that was not true, for he did see the light of the lantern coming closer, but he would not tell his master for fear of what the dead woman might do to him. The two women with their lantern came closer and closer until they were standing at the gate. The samurai begged his servant with tears in his eyes to go and check one more time, was there anyone on the road? Again, the servant went out. He could see the smiling face of the maid lit by the lantern, her cheeks plump and apparently full of life. He could see the graceful figure of the mistress standing behind her. The two women stood at the boundaries but could come no closer and the servant went in and told his master that there was no living soul out there. The old samurai gave a cry as if pain, clutched his chest and then fell with his face to the floor, and though it pained him greatly to see his master in such distress, greater still was the servant's fear of what would happen if he let the two dead women enter the house. It was the same the next night. The servant did all in his power to keep his master inside the house, but still the old samurai kept sending him out to see was there anyone on the road. Again the servant saw the lantern light coming closer, but told his master that there was not a living soul out there. Again the two women could not pass the boundary where the charms had been laid. And again the samurai begged his servant to go out and check again and again was there anyone on the road. The two women began to sing, and the samurai begged his servant to check again. He was certain he could hear someone on the road. But again the servant said there was not a living soul out there. When dawn came and the two women had again disappeared, the servant went to check that all his charms were still in place. But when he went back into the house, he could not find his master. The stick that the old man used to lean upon was gone too. The servant searched high and low. He could not think where his master might have gone, and he began to feel fear in his heart that while he had been outside, some worst fate had befallen his master, something worse than the two dead women calling to him. He ran to the temple to ask them for help. But when he arrived at the temple, one of the monks came out to greet him. They had found his master, but the old samurai would not be returning to his home. He had been found lying upon an old grave in the temple, a grave that had belonged to a woman. Many years ago, when the samurai had been young, he had been in love with a woman. The two had been arranged to be married, but before that blessed day could come, she had died. The servant remembered his master telling him this story, and how he had kept loving her and had never married another in her place. The servant now knew the identity of the woman who had visited his master at night. He knew too that she had meant his master no ill. He also now knew that just as the old samurai had never stopped loving his betrothed, neither had she. And when the old man's time came, she had come from beyond the grave, come to make his passing into the next world sweeter, come to prepare the road that they would walk together now into the next life, led by the light of the peony lantern. And I hope you enjoyed that story. A rather different visit to that that befell Dan Crowley. I hope you're all keeping well, keeping spooky, and most of all, keeping safe. 
If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to tell me your thoughts, opinions, or some other stories you know about visiting corpses, the links to all the social medias can be found in the episode descriptions. We are Tales from the Shadows on the social media. Tales from the Shadows, not Sounds from the Shadows. Because before we started doing the podcast, we also had a sort of theatre company. We do shadow puppetry, we do storytelling. And I thought it'd be simpler if it was all the same social media, but it does get a little bit confusing. On Twitter, we are at Tales Shadows. And on Facebook and Instagram, we are at Tales from the Shadows. You can also find a link to our Patreon and our Ko-fi if you've really enjoyed the podcast and would like to help support it financially. And again, thank you for listening. And now, go wash your hands. 